Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We have a lot of great articles for you today, so let's get started. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Wasper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. This article comes to us from rollingstone.com and it's titled The True Story Behind Cocaine Bear. <laughs> yeah. I want to know because I've seen a lot of references to Cocaine Bear, but I really don't know anything about it. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to get the true story behind the movie that's coming out about oh. said Cocaine Bear. <laughs> so Tuesday, Variety reported that actor Elizabeth Banks' upcoming project would focus heavily on a bear involved in a botched drug smuggling operation, and people on social media reacted in much the same way a coke-addicted ursine would if someone (laughs) broke out a credit card and a rolled-up $20 at a party. Uh, So the film is described as a character-driven thriller, and it's reportedly based on a true story of a convicted drug smuggler who died while parachuting from a plane carrying an extremely heavy load of drugs. All right. The unfortunate bear in question happened to chance upon 40 containers of cocaine and died of an overdose. Oh, wow. Uh, Sadly, but a little bit predictably. (laughs) Uh, So there's many questions that are raised by this project. You know, uh, from what perspective will the story be told? The drug trafficker or the bear? And if the (laughs) latter, would the film focus on the bear's everyday life, consisting largely of footage (laughs) of salmon fishing and developing fecal plugs, Google it, for hibernation? Oh, my God. Uh, That's all a direct (laughs) quote from the article, as you might guess. Yes, that seems Uh, like a lot of conjecture. But hey, you know what? If it's character driven, it could go any direction. Very true. And since we know nothing about these details, uh, we do know some things about the true story. So here's that. (laughs) The story of the cocaine bear starts with the tale of Andrew Carter Thornton, the well-off son of Kentucky horse breeders who became an Air Force officer and Purple Heart recipient and later a narcotics police officer. Thornton resigned from the Lexington, Kentucky Police Force in 1977 to practice law. But the law-abiding life apparently did not serve him well. In 1981, he was arrested along with 25 other men for attempting to steal guns from a naval base in Fresno, California. And after fleeing the state, he was again found heavily armed in North Carolina and brought back to California to face reduced misdemeanor drug charges. Which, I don't really get how that works. Like, you flee a prosecution and then you get a reduced rate, but whatever. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So he pleaded no contest to the charges and was sentenced to six months in prison and a $500 fine. (laughs) But Thornton's days of drug smuggling were far from over. On September 11th, 1985, his body was found in a driveway in Knoxville, Tennessee, wearing a parachute and carrying about 77 pounds of cocaine, which was later (laughs) valued to be worth about $14 million. Wow. Yeah. And he just landed he, in some guy's yard like he did. In- yeah, I think so. And he was heavily armed, wearing a bulletproof vest, and also carrying a membership card to the Miami Jockey Club. Authorities what? later found his plane, which had been on autopilot about 60 miles away, and they determined that he had attempted to jump from the plane, but his parachute had failed to open. Ah. But 
In addition to the bizarre circumstances surrounding his death, Thornton is also notable for inspiring perhaps the most vicious quote ever to be featured in an obituary. Uh, The district attorney who prosecuted him on the 1981 marijuana trafficking charge told the LA Times after he died, I'm glad his parachute didn't open. I hope he got a hell of a high out of that. And they put that in the obituary. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Wow. (laughs) So that's all very, you know, sad and unfortunate mixed, I guess, but the question is, you know, where does the bear come in? Uh Uh, A few months after Thornton died, a hunter in the Chattahoochee National Forest in Georgia stumbled upon a 175-pound black bear. The bear was, to quote Rolling Stone, extremely dead. It appeared to have overdosed after attempting to eat 75 pounds of 95% pure cocaine, which it had found in a duffel bag. The officer who performed the bear's autopsy later said its stomach was literally packed to the brim with cocaine. There isn't a mammal on the planet that could survive that. Cerebral hemorrhaging, respiratory failure, hyperthermia, renal failure, heart failure, stroke, you name it, that bear had it. Uh, Remarkably, the story does not end there. The bear was then stuffed and put on display, passing through various owners, including, at one point, country star Waylon Jennings, before finally ending up at the roadside attraction, the (laughs) Kentucky for Kentucky Fun Mall, in 2015, where it was redubbed Pablo Escobar. Wow. I was yeah. skeptical at first. I was like, how can you possibly make an entire movie out of a bear ate some cocaine? But I'm I'm on board now. I can see yeah. the entire yeah. narrative arc here. This is amazing. Yeah, I can easily see this being kind of like, you know, a burn after reading style misadventure that just ends up sort of circling around this bear as a central plot point. But, you know, you, you stick to the human beings, I guess, through it. And then maybe, you know, Pablo Escobar as a stuffed avatar. <laughs> but one of the proprietors told Roadside America, you wouldn't think that a cocaine bear would would be for all ages, but kids love it. Everybody <laughs> wants a, their picture with Cocaine Bear. And the bear even made a cameo appearance in a surreal 2016 ad for the mall, which I highly recommend you look up. It's only about 30 seconds long, but it is strange and spaced out. And there's a fair amount of swearing that's bleeped out with chicken clucking. Like, it's a whole thing. You should definitely check it out. Wow. But yeah, so then Rolling Stone has actually formatted this entire article as kind of like a faux Q&A, and it ends with, This is a fascinating story, but it doesn't sound super amenable to cinematic adaptation. If I'm being honest with myself, will I actually watch this movie when it comes out? The article answer is probably not, but after discussing it with Eugen, I feel like we have now seen the potential for this movie. Yeah, and, and I, I think that author <laughs> is just trying to like appear above it all. I guarantee uh-huh. you he's going to go see it. There's no yeah. way he doesn't go see it after researching all that information. Yeah, totally. Cocaine Bear is going to be the next Grapes of Wrath. That's oh, all yeah. I'm going to say. Or yeah. the next Sharknado. But either way, yes. it's going to make a yeah. lot of money. <laughs> I feel confident. <laughs> next link. Next, next link. link. All right. Well, we have an article from Wired that, like a lot of my favorite articles, it covers a world or I guess a fandom that I had no idea about. It's about the world of online chess. And specifically, the world of cheaters in online chess. Huh. Yeah. So Levi Rosman is a 25-year-old chess prodigy. He started playing in ranked tournaments when he was seven. He became a national master at 16 and an international master at 18. And I'd personally only ever heard of a grandmaster, but I looked Mm -hmm. it up and international master is just one step below. Wow. The way you achieve these rankings is through something called a FIDE rating or F-I-D-E 
which is a standardized point system in the chess world that has to do with how many official games you've won against other international and grandmasters. The points don't guarantee you a title, but a grandmaster has to have a minimum of 2,500 points, and Levi Rosman has 2,431, so he's close. Yeah. But, like all good millennials, Rosman doesn't just play on the competitive circuit. He also has a YouTube and a Twitch channel where he streams live games that he plays on chess.com. And his big angle there, other than just sort of offering commentary while he's playing, is catching cheaters. Because on the one hand, you would think it would be insanely easy to cheat at online chess, right? Just have a computer opponent running in another window, put in the other person's moves as your own, and then do whatever the computer does against you. But on the other hand, these chess guys are all big stats nerds. And they've figured out some really in-depth ways of analyzing whether a player might be cheating just by the way they play. So a couple of weeks ago, on March 2nd, Rosman was streaming to about 12,000 viewers when he started a match with a user called Dua Kipas. And almost immediately he declared, all right, this looks like a cheater. And of course, his fans went nuts in the chat, right? Because this is why they watch. And Rosman very specifically said as he started the match, let's see if we can get some content here. So... (laughs) They're having fun with it, but it's very clearly there's definitely an element of that kind of schadenfreude thing on the Internet where you're like trying to out somebody and ruin their lives. You know, Mm -hmm. little stuff. So as they're playing, Rosman is pointing out a bunch of inconsistencies, like the fact that Dua Kipas was ranked at 2300 points, but had no actual titles to go along with it. And a thousand of those points had been gained in just the last month. Wow. Another suspicious thing was that when you're playing at Rosman's skill level, the obvious moves play out really quickly, while you spend more time thinking about the complicated moves. But Dua Kipas took around 7 to 10 seconds for every move, hard or easy. So when the match was over, which Dua Kipas won in just 10 minutes, Rosman used a sort of known online tool to analyze how similar his moves were to what the most common chess algorithms would have chosen. Hmm. He scored a 94% similarity compared to Rosman's 76%. And in two of his last 10 games, Dua Kipas had hit over 99%. So Rosman reported the account, chess.com banned him, and the fans were happy. But here's where it starts to get ugly and very weird. The next morning, Rosman woke up to this avalanche of abusive posts, mostly in Indonesian, accusing him of using his celebrity status in the chess world to ban a legitimate player because he was just a sore loser. There were numerous death threats, not just to him, but to his girlfriend's accounts as well. And Rosman pretty quickly figured out that the hate was all coming from an anime superfan page on Facebook, whose owner just happened to be Dua Kipas's son. Huh. He said his father's real name is Dadang Subur, and he's a 60-year-old bird feed seller in Indonesia. As the article describes it, in terse bullet points above an endless scroll of anime memes, Akbar told a much different version of the match, how his father had played a famous Twitch streamer and won, and was then mass-reported by Rosman's huge fan base. He said Sabor was a retired professional chess player who'd only recently discovered online chess, which explained the meteoric rise from a complete unknown. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking, like, a thousand points in a month, you either have to be cheating or you have to have already been a pro and you've just started. Right. And even then, you have to play, like, eight hours a day. Like, just winning that many matches is very difficult. Yeah. So the whole thing went viral on multiple platforms, causing a chess subreddit to get temporarily shut down by moderators and forcing Rosman to lock all his accounts. Wow. It also became a big PR problem for Chess.com, who had to come out and sort of reassure everybody that reported accounts are not just blocked based on someone's word. The administrators go through this long, careful process with like seven different people to determine whether someone is really cheating. 
So Rosman obviously did not appreciate all the harassment, and he reached out to the son to try to resolve things peacefully. And the son offered a bunch of explanations for all the reasons why his father's account seemed suspicious. You know, he's technologically challenged. He's got an old Mm -hmm. phone, so he can't enter his moves as quickly. And some of his early games were really bad because the son actually played a few games on his father's account. Subur himself recorded a 20-minute video in Indonesian defending his win, but saying that he didn't approve of the harassment that his followers were now heaping upon Rosman. He just wanted everyone to go back to being nice and to have his account reinstated. Yeah, very fair. Yeah. His son also shared a bunch of documentation with Wired, including some old chess awards in Indonesia and a handwritten notebook with strategy notes about how the bots play, basically claiming that he played like a bot because he'd intentionally learned how to beat them. Hmm. Unfortunately, none of this convinced the administrators of Chess.com, who say they use a much more rigorous process to look for cheating than the little tool Rosman had. They say they gather data about how often, for example, a user is switching away to another tab during a game. And they can even tell when a player has a chat window open with another live player who's feeding them moves. Wow. COO Danny Wrench said that while this is one of the most crazy controversies online chess has ever seen, the fact remains that this was, quote, an absolute, absolute certain case of cheating. Meanwhile, two weeks later, Rosman's YouTube account is still receiving about one nasty message every few minutes. And Sabur and his sons say they're trying to get an Indonesian grandmaster to come to their house in person and play Sabur live on camera so he can prove himself. Wow. I... Yeah. It feels <laughs> very underworldy. Like, you yeah. know, there's going to be a murder at the end of this story that just got way out of hand. I mean, I understand why some people would take chess seriously, but it's interesting that, you know, the story sounds very plausible and very convincing, you know, like, oh, right. he's just an older man who has been playing chess for years and only mm-hmm. just discovered it and, you know, all these other reasons and blah, blah. But the admins are saying, yeah, no, we, we got yeah. you. So it's like, is all of this just a guise? Like, is this just wounded ego at having gotten caught, you know? Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's it's very, very strange. Yeah. Well, and you can also imagine, like, even if you're using the moves to make yourself better. You know, you're like, mm-hmm. oh, this is the move I would make. What would the computer do? Oh, I see why that's better. Okay. And it just never even occurred to him that yeah. cheating in an online forum would just rain hell down upon him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the other guy. <laughs> yeah. You don't think of the chess world as being embodied Cut by throat. extremely yeah. online aggressive people. But the article did note that a big reason for a lot of this is because during the pandemic, People have started watching chess Twitch streamers way more, both because they're at home and because of the Queen's Gambit. Like, interest in chess has just skyrocketed. So you now have a lot of people watching who weren't necessarily giant chess fans, but are definitely fans of seeing people get taken down online. So Yeah, my wife is actually very into these chess videos on YouTube as well now. And Mm -hmm. I was kind of surprised to see that especially uh, younger chess pros know how to put on a show and know how to be entertaining. They Mm -hmm. completely busted my preconception of, you know, chess people is like utterly silent right, and just right. super smart, but externally boring. <laughs> I can't wait till we have like the newest, hippest product endorsements from chess players. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. This article comes to us from vice.com. It's titled Scientists Have Unlocked the Secrets of the Ancient Antique Thera Mechanism. Oh, If you're not familiar, the Antikythera mechanism was discovered off a Greek island in the Aegean Sea in the early 1900s. The object is actually a highly sophisticated astronomical calculator 
that dates back more than 2,000 years. Mm -hmm. And since its recovery from the shipwreck in 1901, generations of researchers have marveled over its stunning complexity, earning its reputation as the world's first known analog computer. The device's gears and displays cumulatively demonstrated the motions of the planets and the sun, the phases of the lunar calendar, the position of the zodiac constellations, and even the timing of athletic events such as the ancient Olympic Games. And while some of the calculator's mysteries may have been solved over the past century, scientists at University College London's Antikythera research team present for the first time a radical new model that matches all the data and culminates in an elegant display of the ancient Greek cosmos, according to a study published on Friday in Scientific Reports. Huh. So Adam Wojcik, a materials scientist at UCL and a co-author of the study in a call, says this is such a special device. It's just so out of this world given what we know or knew about contemporary ancient Greek technology. It's unique and there's nothing else that remotely approaches it for centuries or maybe a millennia afterwards. Yeah, because you also got to think like this probably wasn't the only one. Like what are the odds that they had this one magical device and it got shipwrecked and sunk and then preserved and brought up again? Like they could have had so much more knowledge that we just don't know about because this happens to be the one thing we've found. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, there's the evidence of like Mesopotamian batteries that worked Mm -hmm. in pots. They were essentially able to like store electrical charge and things like that. Like there's so much that we're starting to come around and respect more and more. Mm -hmm. But I think the early 2000s was very much a time of like, oh, you know, those dumbass Greeks, like they didn't (laughs) know anything back then. That's right. They wore togas. How smart could they be? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And meanwhile, we have to wear clothes because we ruined our climate. But enough about that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So understanding the clockwork instrumentation of the Antikythera mechanism has been a longstanding challenge for scientists because only a third of the artifact survived its multi-millennia entombment under the Mediterranean waves. The remains of the calculator include 82 fragments, some of which contain complex gears and once-hidden inscriptions, Hmm. which were wedged between front and back display faces during the bygone era in which the artifact was fully intact. In particular, the use of surface imaging and high-resolution X-ray tomography on the artifact revealed scores of never-before-seen inscriptions that helpfully amount to a user's guide of the mechanism. Oh, that's convenient. Yeah. Now, Freeth and his colleagues believe they have tackled the missing piece of the puzzle, the complicated gearworks underlying the front cosmos display of the calculator. So this new paper has synthesized other people's work and dealt with all the loose ends and the uncomfortable nuances that other people just ignored. Mm. For example, there are certain features in the surviving bits, holes and pillars and things like that, which people have said, well, we'll just ignore that in our explanation. There must be a use for that, but we don't know what it is, so we'll just ignore it. And so what Adam's team has done is they've just ignored nothing. And the enigmatic pillars and holes all of a sudden make sense in our solution. It all comes together and it fits the inscriptional evidence. Wow. So the inscriptions from the 2006 study suggest that the missing Cosmos display was a moving set of rings charting out the motion of Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, each represented by a small gem, along with the path of the Sun, the phases of the Moon, and the positions of the Zodiac constellations. So in addition to studying these inscriptions, the researchers created computer simulations and partial replicas of the device to test out their novel model. One of the biggest hints emerged from analysis conducted in 2016 that revealed inscriptions in the front cover that included a pair of values 462 years and 442 years, which the mechanism's makers associated with Venus and Saturn. 
The researchers were able to identify a possible source for these numbers derived from the work of the pre-Socratic philosopher Parmenides. And these values are ancient Greek calculations of the synodic periods of the planets, meaning they represent the time it takes for planets to return to the same apparent position in the sky as viewed from Earth, according to the study. Yeah, which is kind of interesting because Venus, I think, even from a geocentric period, only takes about a year to return. So I found that really curious. Mm. Yeah, but they um, were able to find this older document to say, well, this is why they thought that. Which unlocks how they thought the device was supposed to work, even if they got the numbers wrong in the long run. Exactly, exactly. The cycles were complicated by the ancient belief that the Earth was at the center of the solar system. And this geocentric bias required the invention of complex models to account for the retrograde motion of planets. Hmm. This effect is an optical illusion that occurs when faster-moving planets overtake slower counterparts during their orbits around the Sun, but the Greeks devised intricate mechanisms and cycles to find alternate explanations. Hmm. So the synodic cycles revealed for Venus and Saturn enable the team to reverse engineer a system of gears with the right amount of teeth to produce the kind of planetary motion described in the inscriptions, complete with retrograde motions that showed up on the front face. That would be a relatively easy task for one planet, but representing all five known planets involved extremely ingenious engineers. Wojcik explains, if you're going to show all the planets, you have to get their positions correct. As you rotate the handle on the side of the mechanism, all these little planets start to move around like clockwork, and occasionally one of them will turn backwards, and then it would move forwards again, and then another one further out will start to turn backwards. But at any one point when you stop the machine, it's got to give you a faithful reproduction of the heavens because that's the purpose of the machine. Yeah. So to recreate this effect in their model, the team deduced the cycles for the other planets based on the Venus and Saturn data, then devised an elaborate system of gears that could reproduce them. And the whole gear drive was meticulously optimized to fit into a small space between the front and black plates. And there's some images of the device in this reconstruction in the original article uh, that I recommend you look up. Because if you've ever seen the antic theorem mechanism, it's basically kind of like a crappy little looking wheel. Yeah, like it's covered in rust and stuff. Because it's like, you know, thousands of years old. Mm -hmm. But the reproduction shows that it has an entire case. It almost looks kind of like an old timey telephone box. But the front is this dial with the gems on it and all these rotating sphere pieces. It's really, really gorgeous. And if this is actually what the Greeks made, back then you would be thinking holy crap like that looks like something you would find on etsy today you know right, like it's right. really really Highly impressive detailed. It's yeah very, exactly it's very steampunk but way before steampunk yes it, it looks like an extremely steampunk device absolutely wow uh, but there's absolutely no steam uh, <laughs> so it's just you know, punk that's what it is yeah just punk as hell uh, lots of <laughs> copper well it's orange you know it's golden colored but just to underscore how impressive this device is i mean to be able to build this thing with gears is mind-blowing to me because Mm -hmm. I've done a little bit of research into astronomy and also astrological views of, you know, geocentric motion and retrogrades. And you could code that because it's all about the Earth and where these other planets are. And you can kind of just like use angles and math to figure that out. But gears? Holy crap. Right. And if you don't know that the Earth's not at the center, you're already working with bad data and yet they made it work anyway. Yeah. That's incredible. Which is just incredible. Incredible. But that does not mean that the artifact has divulged all of its mysteries, not even close. (laughs) Freeth, Wojcik, and their colleagues now hope to replicate the full machinery of their model using the technologies available to its Greek creators, which presents both an enormous challenge and an exhilarating new chapter in the ongoing saga of the Antic Theorem Mechanism. 
It is so remarkable in terms of its requirements for accuracy and manufacturing ability that it's out of sync with what we think the Greeks could have achieved, Wojcik said. But we have to accept that this is the way the machine worked, and the Greeks made it. Yeah. Unless it's from outer space, we have to find a way in which the <laughs> Greeks could have made it. That's the next stage. And the exciting bit is, I think that's the final piece of the jigsaw. Yeah. And it can't be from outer space because they would have known the Earth is not the center. So we can just rule out aliens on that yeah. alone. <laughs> yeah. Although I do have a little bit of a, of a side rant about that, which is that, you know, there was one Greek astronomer around 300 BC who did propose a heliocentric model. It's not like that information was right. not known back then. Uh, they just, it got buried. Right, like they didn't want to hear it. in the beginning. Yeah, exactly. They had a tendency to murder those guys with hemlock. Like <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, something to do with the church and, you know, religion and, and uh -huh. all that jazz. Next link. <laughs> Next link. All right, well, this one comes from New Atlas. It's called Unique CRISPR Gene Therapy Offers Opioid-Free Chronic Pain Treatment. Uh, so in case anyone's not aware, CRISPR is a form of gene therapy where, in the simplest terms, a substance is injected into your body and the magical items in that substance are programmed to snip out specific sections of DNA and sometimes even replace them with other bits of DNA. Trials on humans are obviously still very controversial, though some have taken place in China and at least one study has been approved in the U.S. for inserting working genes into the blood cells of people with sickle cell anemia and then injecting that blood back into the patient to see if they're able to properly carry oxygen. Wow. It's a cool technology with a lot of potential, even if it does have some very nasty ethical concerns. But the interesting thing about this article is that it's actually talking about a new way to use CRISPR in a way that might end up answering a lot of these ethical concerns. So far, it's just a proof of concept in mice, but it's nonetheless pretty earth-shattering if it does pan out. So one of the big keys to how CRISPR works is it uses an enzyme called Cas9 to act as the genetic scissors. Researchers can modify what and where it cuts, but this Cas9 enzyme is the thing that goes in and makes the lasting change to your DNA. But now there is a new form of Cas9 called DCAS9, which study author Anna Moreno says is like a dead version of the enzyme that doesn't actually cut the offending DNA out. It just smothers and represses it for a time. Hmm. And they don't go into any more detail about how that works. And I really wish they did because the terminology itself is weird. Like enzymes are not alive. And it's really mm -hmm. unclear how a specific enzyme could go from cutting to silencing and not realistically be considered a completely different enzyme. But we'll just have to leave that sort of thing for the scientists because all the detail we get right now is that it works. Good enough for me. Yeah. <laughs> so what Anna Moreno did with this dead Cas9 enzyme is she used it to silence a specific gene called NAV1.7, which codes for a protein that's needed by pain-transmitting neurons. If they don't have the protein, they can't operate. And previous studies have shown that when NAV1.7 is naturally overexpressed, just because that's how your genes are, in both animals and people, they are more sensitive to small amounts of pain. And when it's underexpressed, those people have a higher than normal pain tolerance. They've also hmm. pretty much confirmed that NAV1.7 doesn't really have any other obvious roles to play. Like some genes affect a lot of different traits that seem unrelated, but NAV1.7 seems really specifically associated with pain tolerance and nothing else. She says you wouldn't want to use the old CRISPR system on this gene because removing it entirely could potentially make someone feel no pain, which creates a lot more problems than it solves. But with the dead Cas9, the gene expression is just significantly weakened and the effect wears off in several months. But on the flip side of that, the effect of one injection lasts several months. And if you're looking at, for example, a burn victim or a war veteran who's been terribly wounded, 
giving them a shot or two until they heal is way better than prescribing months of opioids, which is what we're doing right now and is a big part of why we have this massive opioid epidemic, is people are legitimately injured and need pain relief, but then by the time they're healed, they're completely hooked on these substances and their lives are ruined. Mm -hmm. So Moreno and her co-authors have already formed a private company called Navega Therapeutics to further translate DCAS9 gene therapies into clinical treatments for all sorts of things. Like what they really have here is simply a way to quieten certain genes, and it could be used on theoretically any genes. And all the treatments they're researching would be temporary, so they expect a lot less pushback from the FDA, who has, you know, historically not been a big fan of genetically modifying humans. Yeah. And they say they believe they could be doing human trials on this pain treatment in specific in as little as two years, which is pretty fantastic if, you know, we suddenly have this revolutionary new way to not feel pain for a few months. It could be incredible for surgery and all sorts of treatments. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know if I would want to... I guess it opens up some interesting opportunities like, hey, we can turn your pain off. Would you like to be awake during your surgery? Right. Uh, I mean, anesthesia is risky. So that's yeah, one sure. thing, you know, you might consider. But also, I don't know if I want to be awake, even if I can't feel anything. Right. I don't know if I'm ready right. for that emotionally. It, it, you know, with these sorts of technologies, I always wonder about the second order effects of like how people decide to treat these because there might be this weird new world where we have people who just are like, nah, I'm good without the pain. If it becomes an inconvenience, I'll go turn it on, I guess. Like, right, <laughs> right. People are just imagine. walking around never feeling pain and they become super soldiers and now we're in a dystopia. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Except, you know, they're they're still injurable. They still can die. They still can right. get infections. They just won't feel it, you know? Right, yeah. Well, and there's definitely something like you were talking about to the psychological nature of being awake for injuries but not feeling the pain. Like, I, mm -hmm. I had C-sections when my kids were born. And it was a whole deal where, like, you have to stay awake because if they put you under, any anesthesia they give you is going to the baby as well. So, like, they yeah, can if wow. they really have to, but they're like, we don't want to do that. We're just going to keep you awake. And part of the deal is there's this m giant curtain that blocks your vision of what's going on on your torso. Like, they don't want you to uh. see it. And when you lay down on the table, they strap you in. Wow. Because they don't want you to suddenly panic and decide, I need to get up right now. Like, that's they, mm -hmm. they absolutely can't have that. And when they strapped my arms in, they said, oh, these are just your reminder straps to not stand up. I'm like, my reminder straps? <laughs> you have tied me down. I cannot get up. I thought it was hilarious. But, but yeah, they're very much, and like, if the dad's in the room, he's got to stay on the far side of the curtain. And my husband said he kind of looked over the curtain once thinking like, oh, I can handle it. And he was like, well, I cannot handle it. Like, no, 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 no. <laughs> oh, yeah. So it oh. is pretty disturbing. I can see how you wouldn't want people to be awake during surgery, even if you could. But mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, I guess just give them a blindfold and a podcast and they're good to go. <laughs> right. Just let them lay there calmly <laughs> listening. Someone yeah. can describe what's happening to them, but they don't have to yeah. see it. I mean, maybe maybe this is already happening. Maybe somebody is listening to this podcast at this very moment. Oh, that would be fantastic. Uh, I'm sure yeah, there's... In which case, <laughs> I hope it's going well. I'm sure it's going great. Congratulations. Yeah, I hope your reminder straps are comfortable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. This article comes to us from fizz.org, and it's titled Bacteria Know How to Exploit Quantum Mechanics Study Finds. Oh, do so, they? Yeah, <laughs> apparently. So Greg Engel, professor of chemistry and senior author on the study, says, Before this study, the scientific community saw quantum signatures generated in biological systems and asked the question, were these results just a consequence of biology being built from molecules, or did they have a purpose? 
and this is the first time we are seeing biology actively exploiting quantum effects. Hmm. So the scientists studied a type of microorganism called green sulfur bacteria. These bacteria need light to survive, but even small amounts of oxygen can damage their delicate photosynthetic equipment. So they must develop ways to minimize the damage when the bacterium does encounter oxygen. To study this process, researchers tracked the movement of energy through a photosynthetic protein under different conditions, with oxygen around and without. They found that the bacterium uses a quantum mechanical effect called vibronic mixing to move energy between two different pathways depending on whether or not there's oxygen around. And vibronic mixing, and that's V-I-B-R-O-N-I-C, if that helps anybody, <laughs> involves vibrational and electronic characteristics in molecules coupling to one another. In essence, the vibrations mix so completely with the electronic states that their identities become inseparable, and this bacterium uses this phenomenon to guide energy where it needs to go. Uh, oh, wow. I'm going to be completely honest, I don't 100% understand, or I'm not completely able to visualize what this looks like, because it's all, you know, crazy quantum stuff. But yeah. if there's no oxygen around and the bacterium is safe, the bacterium uses vibronic mixing by matching the energy difference between two electronic states in an assembly of molecules and proteins called the FMO complex with the energy of the vibration of a bacteriochlorophyll molecule, which encourages the energy to flow through the normal pathway toward the photosynthetic reaction center, which is packed full of chlorophyll. But if there is oxygen around, the organism has evolved to steer the energy through a less direct path where it can be quenched. And quenching energy is similar to putting a palm on a vibrating guitar string to dissipate energy. Huh. The bacterium loses some energy but saves the entire system. So my understanding is that there is energy, which I assume is produced by the photosynthetic process and the light and gets mixed into a certain channel using this vibronic mixing thing. Uh, I'm not 100% sure. It is very high tech, though. Uh, are you following this, Jen? I mean, kind of. I'm trying to put it in terms of Schrodinger's cat, because that's mm -hmm. always my favorite way to go back to that metaphor. And so I'm imagining like, okay, there's either oxygen inside the box or there isn't. And somehow yeah. without looking inside the box, it can still read the energy outside the box and determine whether it wants to open the box or completely squash the box. Like that, yeah. I've, I've decided that's what it, it looks like. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think that's probably a fair way to think about it because I can't think of another one right now. Yeah. So, but still, uh, that's super frightening that like yeah. this bacteria is able to sense these energy states without actually knowing the energy states. Like that's creepy. Yeah, what, and I mean, I, it, it's got to be, you know, part of the actual mechanism of the thing itself because, like, it doesn't yeah. have a brain, you know? Yeah. So what the heck? That's pretty wild. Uh, so to achieve this effect, a pair of cysteine residues in the photosynthetic complex acts as a trigger. They each react with the oxygen in the environment by losing a proton, which disrupts the vibronic mixing. And this principle is a bit like blocking two lanes on a superhighway and diverting some traffic to local roads where there are many more exits. And Jake Higgins, a graduate student in the Department of Chemistry and the lead author of the paper, says, What's interesting about this result is that we are seeing the protein turn the vibronic coupling on and off in response to environmental changes in the cell. The protein uses the quantum effect to protect the organism from oxidative damage. And these findings bring about an exciting new revelation about biology and that quantum effects can be important to survival. This phenomenon is likely not limited to green sulfur bacteria, the scientists said. 
Right, which is the terrifying part. Right, You find it in bacteria, but actually it's like everywhere and we just don't realize it yet. Yeah, I mean, if it can work on the level of a protein, then who knows, literally any human being, perhaps, or any living thing that has proteins could have proteins that operate at a quantum level in some way. Right, we could be quantum beings and not have any idea. Exactly. Fantastic. Which, you know, (laughs) I prefer to think of myself as a quantum being, so I am going to just embrace this wholeheartedly now that I know it's an option. (laughs) I'm just, my brain is always on superpowers and maybe we already have them. I don't know. People use quantum effects to explain a lot of silly things that maybe they shouldn't use it. So I don't want to go too far, but uh, very interesting. And the fact is that reality does have a quantum underlying basis. That's literally just the science. So, well, living beings, maybe only photosynthetic beings. Well, and I mean, even if it's just bacteria, our biome inside our body is like 60% bacteria. Like there's some obscene statistic that I cannot remember where it's like the bacteria in our body weigh more than we do. Like we have so many bacteria that we're living in symbiosis with. So it's like trillions of bacteria at any one time per any given human. So yeah, I guess my stomach is really the quantum soup. I agree. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent throwback. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, that is all we have time for. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include Monster antimatter particle slams into Antarctica. Cone snails are liars and murderers. And (laughs) unearthing the stories of those who escaped Auschwitz. So all that and more can be found on damninteresting.com. If you'd like to support us and keep us on the air, you can go to patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Waisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.